This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hi, everyone. It's Pam Barnhill, and welcome to Episode 3 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. Today, we're talking about another one of those three R's of morning time. We're talking about reading. And this can be kind of a tricky subject because most homeschoolers read to their children in some way. So this begs the question, how is reading aloud during morning time different from the reading aloud that you might do at other times of day with your family? To help me answer that question today, I have my good friend, Brandy Vinsel. Brandy is someone who definitely spends a lot of time reading to her children. She follows the Ambleside online curriculum. She is a big proponent of the Charlotte Mason method of education, and she is here today to help us talk about how reading aloud in morning time looks a little bit different from the other reading that you might be doing or how it could look a little bit different. A couple of the things that we do in today's podcast that you can look forward to, we really kind of talk about what Brandy's morning time looks like, and then we talk about the reading in her morning time. What kinds of things does she read? For a family that spends a lot of their day reading, how is the reading during morning time different and how does she make those choices? We also do a little comparison between the reading Brandy does in her morning time and the reading I do in my morning time because we're not a family that does the Charlotte Mason method where we're reading all day. Morning time is actually quite a bit of our daily reading. And finally, we unpack a few truths, some good nuggets for you at the end. What I love about Brandy is typically about halfway through a conversation that we have together, she comes up with some great, really insightful nugget. And today was no exception. So we're going to talk a little bit about how reading can fire the imagination and what that can do for a child. So it's a great conversation. I'm so glad you're here. And when we're done, we've got an awesome basket bonus for you at the end. So be sure to stick around for that. Brandy Vinsel blogs at Afterthoughts, and she's also the author of Start Here, A Journey Through Charlotte Mason's 20 Principles. She is a member of the Ambleside Online Auxiliary, and she has homeschooled her four children using the Charlotte Mason method for about the past 12 years now. Welcome, Brandy. Hi. Hi. How are you? (laughs) I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Well, I'm so happy that you have come on to join me today to talk to me a little bit about reading and morning time. But I do want to go ahead and kind of set the record straight from the very beginning here. You do not do morning time in your house, do you? No, we do circle time. Okay. That's the right name. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's the, go ahead, tell me again. That's the right okay, name. So that's the right name. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I just want to set the, the record straight before we even start that during the podcast, you and I may use the word morning time or we may use the term circle time, but we're talking about exactly the same practice. Yes. Okay. Because I just I, don't want to have to do it in the morning if I don't want to. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yeah. And I just didn't want to confuse anybody. They're like, okay, she's calling it circle time. All right. Well, go ahead and tell me a little bit about how did you get started doing your circle time and how has it evolved over the years? You know, it was really a convergence of two things. So the first year that I was homeschooling first grade, which is sort of our first, 
I mean, I do kindergarten, but first grade was a big deal. That's when the Ambleside online curriculum starts and all of that. And so the first year that my oldest was doing first grade, I had a baby. <laughs> and so that were, that year is all a blur. And so the second year, I just kind of felt like, I don't know, a really frazzled and going in many di- different directions. So when I had that baby, that I, then I had three children under the age of four, and then I had this first grader. And I was reading Cindy Rollins' blog, and she was talking about morning time. And then she also referred to circle time. She called it morning time, but circle time, and she referred to the preschoolers and peace blog. And so I read the preschoolers and peace blog, and one of their emphases for circle time was this idea of making your preschoolers feel included in the day, like having a spot where for them. And so I sort of started really with that emphasis of just, I just felt like I was having trouble doing right by my oldest child and doing school and doing right by all these preschoolers and like paying any attention to them or developing them in any way or, you know, that kind of thing. And so for me, it was just this perfect time to try to set aside time for ever for all of us to be together as a family doing some things. But I really got the form of it, of the thing from Cindy, because at that time she still had some really little ones. Her youngest child is not much older than my oldest child. And so she was still very much talking about what do you do with a preschooler? What do you, you know, that kind of thing. So the ideas of things like putting in memory work or singing or all of that was just very much inspired by her. But I guess the name Circle Time, <laughs> we can blame that on preschoolers and peace, I guess. <laughs> right. And and that's Kendra Fletcher. Yes. Yes. And she does have a book and I think it's Circle Time, The Best Part of Your Day. But we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I think that's still available. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. And I love that that was your main focus then was how do I do right by this six-year-old, but also include all of these little guys in what we're doing and do right by them as well. So yeah. I, I love that, that that's where it started. Now that your youngest is six. He starts first grade this year. So we've come full circle. <laughs> you have come full circle I with your have. circle time. <laughs> so how has your circle time evolved now? How does it look different now that you have a 12, 13-year-old down to a six-year-old? Well, it's kind of funny. I was actually talking with someone about this the other day because when they're little, kind of how I organized things was that it was sort of all inclusive and then I might start dismissing or not really dismissing, but allowing little ones to wander off kind of based upon their ages. So like I would start with the most important things. So Bible and prayer. And I wanted everybody to be there. I mean, sometimes with babies, you can't negotiate, but for the most part, I wanted everyone to be there. But then after that, you know, if you're two or three and you wander off, that's fine. <laughs> as long as you're not destroying anything elsewhere. Right. As long as you're not hurting yourself or others, we're good. <laughs> and so then I might do, you know, songs and memory work and my preschooler. So four and five year olds might still like to hang out and do some of the singing and some of the reciting and that kind of thing. But then they might wander off of we're doing readings. And so I was sort of, you know, dismissing or allowing people to leave as it got on and we lost their attention or that kind of thing. But now it's almost reversed because now it's my oldest (laughs) who leaves because we have this day set up where it's everything that we do together. But then there are some things I'm combining the younger children for that he's already done. He's he's three years away from the next child. And so he's been through all of the curriculum that she's doing and that kind of thing. And so it's just kind of funny how that works out that now it's the oldest that's leaving instead of the youngest one that's wandering off. So he kind of will leave sometimes near the end 
when we're doing something that he really doesn't need to be present for, and he'll go start his day. He might start on Latin. So the only other thing I would say that has changed would be then the content because we've all matured a lot. You know, I don't need to do picture books as much, you know, that kind of thing versus when they were really little. Some of the readings were just for preschoolers and that that kind of thing. So we've had that change also, I guess, is the other big thing I can think of over the years. So circle time in your house has been a tool that you've used that's definitely evolved and changed as your children have evolved and changed and grown. Absolutely. I guess they're growing, not really evolving and changing. (laughs) (laughs) That would be the proper term. (laughs) One of the things I wanted to talk to you about, I know you do a lot of reading throughout your school day because you do follow the Ambleside Online curriculum with four children. Help me kind of paint a picture here. I know that your oldest is doing his own Ambleside year. And then your youngest guy, did you do year zero with him? Sort of, but I wouldn't say as officially maybe as some people do it just because I keep things really informal in those ages. So, I mean, we read a lot of those books, but it wasn't a real super organized thing where I had, you know, boxes to check or anything like that. And then your two middle girls, do they do a year together? Is that what they're doing or do they do their own separate years? They have some things that are separate and some things that are combined is what I do with them. So they're in the same year of math. So that's probably one thing you've heard me say that I combine with them. But this coming year, they're going to be combined for, I think, geography and I think a little bit of their science also. So I just every year I kind of reexamine what I can combine people in. And usually, if nothing else, it's the two of them that are combined on some things. Right. So you have a lot of moving parts just in the non-circle time part of your school day and a lot of reading that's going on, either children who are reading things to themselves individually, and you're still reading quite a bit to some of your other children. Mm -hmm. So what I want to talk to you about is what does the reading look like that you're specifically doing in your circle time? And how is that different than the reading that they're doing for their Ambleside years at separate parts of the day? Well, I would say there is some crossover. So I do sometimes use circle time as an opportunity to combine something. So with Ambleside, the main thing I like to keep separate is the history component because it's chronological. And I like the idea of them starting in year one and going all the way through a whole cycle of history chronologically. So that's really my main motivation in keeping it separate for the most part. But things like geography or some of the natural history, which would be science readings, that kind of thing, I think a lot of them do fine crossing over years. So they might be like a specific book that's chosen for science or something for Ambleside might really be appropriate for anyone between, you know, second grade and fifth grade or something like that. And so what I'll do is I will pull some books from one person's year that I know all three of my younger children at least have not done. And I'll put it into circle time. And that'll be something my oldest child can then skip out on. So I'll put that as like the last thing on that particular day. So another big one that I do is that Pilgrim's Progress is assigned by Ambleside in the original language for second and third grade, I believe. Mm -hmm. And instead of making that part of any particular child's year, I have just kind of taken that piece out And we just read a little bit of it every week in circle time. And I've been doing that for, I guess, seven years now. (laughs) 
We took a little bit of a break for a short period of time to do a little bit of something else, but we're going back to it this year. And so I don't worry about staying on the Ambleside schedule with that. I just, when we get to the end of Pilgrim's Progress, which we have done before, then we just start back at the beginning because there's always someone who doesn't really remember the beginning of it anyway. So this is Uh, like the book that never ends. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fantastic book. It really is. And so, yeah, so I mean, so I have these books that I've sort of taken out of the curriculum and then it makes that it makes all of the children's days lighter because for instance if I'm taking a science book out and putting it into circle time I'm not going to double up on science that just counts as science for everyone and if they miss the book for their year they'll get it again later I'm not that worried about it I don't know if that makes sense No that makes that's... perfect sense Okay yeah. <laughs> I do use circle time as a way to do to combine some subject areas of the Ambleside assignments. Because it is, I mean, Ambleside uses a lot of pages. It has a very high page count. So practically getting all that done for four children can be a challenge. So that's sort of one way of dealing with it. Versus, I mean, also, I like to have group conversations about some of the books. So it also allows for that, you know, instead of all the books being read by themselves. Okay. There are a couple things I'm hearing here. First of all, I'm hearing that Ambleside, even if someone is not completely following the Ambleside curriculum, going to that website and looking around at some of the selections they have is probably a really great place to find some ideas for what to read during morning time. Oh, I definitely think so. I can't believe how great some of the books are because so many of them when we started, I had never even heard of the authors or the books or anything. And it's just, it's been wonderful because most of them are really ideal for reading aloud, which is, you know, circle time, morning time, that's usually a read aloud time for people. And so I think a lot of those books fit really well just for the goal of reading aloud. Okay. All right. And so the other thing I hear you saying is that circle time or morning time is a great place to combine children for one subject. So it's a great place to do science reading for all of your children, and that counts as everyone's science. Or it's a great place to do Pilgrim's Progress, which I, in my house, I would label that as religious reading and do it for all of your children. You know, everybody would be enjoying it together. Yeah. In fact, you saying religious reading sort of rang a bell for me. And I was thinking, you know, I, so Ambleside also has some church history readings, and sometimes I've used their assignments, and sometimes I've chosen things myself. But that's another thing I've kind of pulled out. And so I've just, made sure all the children have had church history readings every year, but they're not necessarily using the Ambleside schedule because we've put it into morning time and we're doing it all together. The way they have it scheduled, it does somewhat dovetail with the history cycle. So my children are missing out on having it chronological along with their history. But for me, it's just been worth it to have them all combined for that thing. Right. And Charlotte Mason would say they could make those connections for themselves anyway, right? Amen, sister. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's kind of get a sample. Can you give me a sample of a few things that at any given time you might be reading in your morning time? Sure. So I actually printed out some of my old schedules so that I could remember what I've done over the years. Often I have church history. Often I have Pilgrim's Progress. I've done lots of science and geography also over the years. Can you give Poetry? me samples of a couple of science or geography books you might have sure. used? Let's see, geography. Last year, we did Men of the Mississippi by okay. Holling C. Holling. And I actually 
dismissed my youngest child. He was a kindergartner. So he left the room for that. And I just did that with my girls at the end of circle time. But yeah, we used that one, you know, traced the turtles journey on the map kind of thing and did that. Let's see. Science. What else have I done for science? We did the tarantula in my purse. <laughs> oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> Those are sort of uh, animal story, bug story kinds of things. We did Nature's Weather Forecasters, and I always hate telling people this. It's a wonderful book on predicting the weather and understanding on a really basic level how weather works. But when I bought it, it was $4 or something, and now they're hundreds of dollars on Amazon last time I checked. Oh, <laughs> so I always feel bad telling people about it because it's a great book if you can ever find it, but it's just hard to find it inexpensively. Okay. So that's one to look for in thrift stores or at your exactly. library. Exactly. Yeah. Because if you find it, it really is great. But I wouldn't say it's worth paying $100 for, you know, right. I mean, it was a great $5 investment for me. <laughs> yeah. Those are some of our geography, like hauling, sea hauling is basic. We do a lot of him for geography in, in the younger years around here. And actually this year, we're going to do geography with my three youngest children in morning time. We're going to do Cruise of the Arctic Star, which is California geography. Because we're in California, I'm supposed to cover California history, California geography, that kind of thing at some point in their elementary school career. And so we're going to do that this year. And morning time's a great place to just kind of tuck that right in there. Exactly. Okay. So we have kind of your religious reading and church history, some science, and also some geography. What other kinds of things might you read during morning time? See, we've done poetry. I'm trying to look at my list here. Oh, I see this. So one year, I guess I actually just put in a literature selection for fun. So we did Swallows and Amazons one year, and they did love that also. And it's, you know, it's easy for me to get really caught up in trying to make circle time count academically, where there's these exact subjects that I'm covering and these boxes I can feel like I checked and and they made my students rest of their day lighter and all of that kind of stuff. But the year that I added in Swallows and Amazons, what I learned was that just taking time for that joy of, you know, enjoying a story together and getting really into it. It was so valuable. And it was, it really, I think, changed the mood about our school day. And not that it was horrible before, but I mean, they were just super excited on the day that we were reading Swallows and Amazons. And so I think I learned that it is worth it, or especially if you are having a hard time in morning time to add in a book that is, I mean, you can still discuss it and everything. I mean, But just to add in something that's kind of for sheer joy, I think that has a lot of value, too. Okay, well, I was going to kind of compare and contrast our circle time readings, but they're really not that different from each other. (laughs) (laughs) So we also we do kind of a religious reading right now. We're reading a little book called The King of the Golden City, which is an allegory for children. and you know, on any given day, we might be reading a composer biography. We're doing Burgess Bird Book this year. We're working our way through that one. Ooh, I like that one. Yeah. And poetry, of course, we're studying Robert Louis Stevenson all year long. Ooh, I like him. <laughs> and we're reading some of the Time Life math books. I think those are also out of print, but we're reading some of those for kind of mathematical fun, you know, to kind of bring a little interesting side note to math and not just it be about the 
the worksheet that you're doing today or the concept that you're covering. So I'm going to add a link to those because I have never heard of those before. That sounds really interesting. Usually you can get them fairly inexpensively on Amazon and it, they're just simple little cart. They've got little cartoon drawings in there and they're, the kids love them. The one we read this week was about a cat and she was helping these two other children in her building. <laughs> so this is, it's the cartoon. Um, figure out whose garden plot was larger. They had two different shaped garden plots and they wanted to know who had the larger garden plot. Well, of course, by the time she got down there with her little square and squared them all off, they were both exactly the same size. But it it was just a fun little story. Artist biographies are something that we read. And then history, we read our history spine during morning time because I combine all three of my children for history. And then we also do... We do have a read aloud portion of morning time where we take whatever the current family read aloud is and I read a chapter. And I know some families like to do that at bedtime. Some families do it at different times of the day, but I like to do it during morning time because that time, if the re- that way, if the rest of the day gets crazy or the, the schedule in the evening has a lot of things crammed into it, like, you know, church and choir and my daughter goes to dance in the evening times, things like that, then we know we've gotten in our read aloud chapter for the day. That's a really good idea. Yeah. You do that every day? Every day except for Thursday. And we we do morning time four days a week. We do too. (laughs) Yeah. So we do it the three days. And then if we, you know, if we do get to it in the evening, that's great. We just get an extra dose for the day. But that way, you know, I have, it'll get done and not get forgotten. So what about you guys? Do you tend to do read alouds at a different time of day? Yeah, you know, it's become our tradition actually to do it at lunch. Oh, okay. And so sometimes I'll even kind of snack while I'm making lunch so that I can just read while everybody's eating. But yeah, we I so I read aloud every day at lunch. And then if we have time in the evenings or something, we will add another rehab chapter or half a chapter or something. But it's sort of the same kind of thing. Like usually we are eating lunch and so we can do that. But the rest of the day is a little bit more of a toss up depending on our schedule. And so, yes, it's totally the same philosophy of just, this is a set time that we can do it. And I actually started doing that because my youngest had behavior issues lunch. And I figured out that he would behave if there was a story being told. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and so then it became this happy, you know, cause it, you know, with kids, if you do things one time, then it's your horrible person. If you break the tradition, right? Right. So, <laughs> And so once I did that once or twice, I was pretty much stuck reading a lot at lunch for the rest of my entire life, I think. <laughs> so the year that you did Swallows and Amazons in morning time, did you still do your read aloud at lunch? I did. But if I remember right, we actually just had two read alouds going. So we kind of made Swallows and Amazons special for circle time. And our other one was sort of special for lunch. And we just had two going, which we don't always have multiples going, but it worked fine at that time. So... All right. Well, now we've talked a little bit about different things you can read during circle time and kind of what our reading looks like. So let's talk a little bit about living books and why it's important to choose a living book for your reading during morning time. I'll be honest and say, I think the number one reason probably to use a living book would just be because children will pay more attention to them. Really. I really think they are just, they tend to be in more of a story form, even if they're a geography book or a science book or something. And I think, well, Charlotte Mason said that our minds are sort of, especially when we're little, they're sort of made for story, I guess. 
And so I just think, you know, we're in the middle of this, this education project that we're trying to do and attention is so important. And then trying to hold a child's attention with something that's not very interesting is pretty much impossible. And so, you know, when we use living books as our tool, it's, you know, they almost demand attention because they're so good. (laughs) Okay. So let's give a couple of characteristics for any of our listeners who might not be familiar with the term living book. Can you give me a couple of characteristics of what a living book is? Sure. Um, I'd say, well, first off, it's not a textbook. And what I mean by that is usually it only has one author, maybe two, but you know, textbooks are usually written by like a committee of people, a large group of people. If you look in there, there's five to 50 authors. And so usually they're written by one person and they're usually written by someone who, you know, has a real passion or expertise in their field when we're talking about, you know, science or geography. And then, and they're usually in more of a literary form. So, so they're written more like a story. I don't want to completely limit it to story because it's not like everything has to be written like a fiction novel or something, but they just have, like I'm thinking Men of the Mississippi is teaching sort of a history of the Mississippi River, and it's also teaching the geography of the Mississippi River, but it's also the story of a turtle and the turtle's development and habits and even some of the science behind what it is to be a turtle. <laughs> and so you kind of have all these things together, but it's, it's definitely a story of this particular turtle's travels on the Mississippi. And so I think that's a really good example of we're teaching these facts, if you will, of what the Mississippi is like, but it's closed in this story of this turtle. And so it's more, it's more memorable. It's more interesting than if I just rattled off a lecture to my kids about the Mississippi River and how long it was. And Right. Or read an encyclopedia entry. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so I think really with living books, that's why they hold the attention, I think, is just because the style is so much more intriguing. And then usually there's this focus more on ideas over facts, which I know we're going to talk about some other time. <laughs> well, well, no, we can actually touch on this here because this was actually on my list of things. So, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah. I'm not breaking the rules now. <laughs> no, you're not breaking the rules. I think it's something that could be unpacked in a, in a whole episode all by itself. But let's talk about that for a second. So you have a book like Men of the Mississippi, and there are a lot of facts in there about the Mississippi River and a lot of facts in there about turtles, but it's a living book. And so it has a story to it. What are kind of some of the ideas When I say to you, well, Brandy, we're going to not just focus on facts, but we're also going to focus on ideas. What would that mean to you? What are, what are those ideas? Goodness. What are the ideas? That's a hard question. What are the ideas in men? I've never really sat down and thought about men. Or Uh, any book. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I'm throwing you on the spot with men. (laughs) Thank you. Is it it perseverance? Is it, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, in, in hauling, see hauling, I think there's a lot of ideas of like, the deep history that's embedded in a place. And so, you know, I think as a child, when I was, I was definitely taught geography and a fact, and I'm not against facts. I mean, like you can't know anything without knowing facts, but I was taught facts in isolation of any idea. So I just had to learn. I just had to memorize these facts that I really didn't understand and rattle them off on a test. And that was kind of the end. And so I really don't remember much about geography other than that I had a great dislike for it. So when you read Hauling, one of the things I really like about him is that he kind of shows you that this place belongs to these people and these animals and that, you know, the place is the way it is because of how it is geographically. 
but also that we change the geography. So for instance, in Min, there's this place where there are these hills on the side of the river. And probably if I was there, I would think, oh, look, there's hills, but actually they're ancient Indian mounds. And the Indians built these hills and they used to have, you know, structures and stuff on them. And those have all gone now, but the hill itself is still there. And so they actually changed the geography of the place. So I feel like with Hauling, probably the big idea we get when we read any of his books is, except for maybe Seabird, because that's the ocean and we don't really, as humans, we we don't leave our mark on the ocean because it's water. So that's a little bit different. But as far as his others that take place on land, there's this definite idea of the interaction between the way the land is, but then the effect that people and animals and history, like wars and the passage of time and all of that, have upon the place. So it's like this interactive view of geography where it's not completely stagnant. It's something that changes and evolves. I mean, slowly, but it definitely changes over time. So I never really thought that about geography Mm -hmm. (laughs) until I started reading Holland's children's books. (laughs) You wouldn't sit there and explain all of that to your children, just like you explained it to me. You Mm -hmm. would let them come to the realization of that idea through that text, right? Yeah. And they probably, most, maybe my oldest, the others probably would not be able to articulate that they understand that, you know, geography is impacted by a relationship between creatures and the land. Like, I don't think they could ever, they could articulate that right now if you talk to any of them. But I do see that they have that understanding because of the kinds of questions they ask about places when we go there. And so like if they are seeing a new place, some of the questions they ask are very interesting to me or the observations they make. And I can totally see the influence. So it's like those ideas become kind of latent. So it's they're not super conscious of them. But I do see that they've taken them in over time, especially my daughter that's going into fifth grade because she's read three or four of these kinds of geography books, three by Hauling. And then there's another one we've read that's very similar. And so her... I can just see that she observes things and she wonders, you know, is it naturally like that? Or is there a reason why it's like that? Did some creature make that? Or did man make something? Or I, it's just, it's interesting to watch her kind of thinking about it. And I see that she's picked up the idea, even though she couldn't articulate it. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it does. I think it does kind of, we're shaped by these stories that we read and they do enter our psyche and stay with us much longer than we ever realize. Oh, absolutely. Well, sto- I don't know. Story is really interesting. I feel like it it has the ability to enter almost like a different part of your brain or something. And possibly it's because, so I was thinking, you know, what was wrong with how I was taught geography as a child? And what I mean by wrong is like, why didn't I remember anything? Why didn't I like it? That kind of a thing. And I really think that it's because I was never able to imagine any of the places that I, so nothing ever entered my imagination. Nothing was compelling enough for me to want to do that, but nothing was ever story shaped enough for me to kind of spontaneously imagine either. And so I'm thinking when we're reading these geography sort of tales, because like when the kids are older, we might read, I don't know, books that are uh, written by travelers like, you know, Lewis and Clark or, you know, that kind of thing. But you can't help but imagine this journey as you're kind of traveling with them in the story. And I'm thinking, I think that's just a much more powerful way to study something because it engages the imagination because you're reading it as a story versus when we're just studying it as facts. And there's definite place for facts. Like I do map drills with my kids at a different time of day. So don't get me wrong that facts aren't important. But 
I just think when we engage the imagination, it has a different effect on the memory and it has way more sticking power. You just said something that's probably going to change the way we're doing some things around here. Because I think you're exactly right. I think that there's definitely, it puts everything into a, it gives everything a a whole nother layer when you combine kind of probably those math drills that you're doing. And you, you said that you guys actually took men and mapped it out on the map and followed his trail down the Mississippi. Ah. So you were probably talking about a lot of facts and locations and water formations and things of that nature. And then you paired it with the story. And so that probably went a long way towards putting it in probably even separate areas of the brain. I don't know if there's any brain research on that, but that makes sense to me. That would be actually interesting to try to look up the research and see. (laughs) Yeah, it really would. Let's talk a little bit about reading in morning time, because one of the things that I know you, you do with your circle time, with some of your reading especially, is you do what you call slow reading. You read small chunks and you read, let's say, a chapter once a week or once every few days. So tell me a little bit about that practice. Why would I want to read very small chunks to my children and spread a book out over a very long period of time? That's a good question. And I'm thinking, you know, I'll give an example of what we're doing right now. We started in probably in May. It might have even been April. But anyway, we're reading through Tolkien. We read The Hobbit last year. So now we're doing the trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And so we're reading, we're probably at the pace of about a chapter a day for that book because it's summertime. And so that's our, our read aloud. And But even then, and I don't think of that as actually being particularly slow, but I've had people comment that it is because I I suppose if you're reading alone, the temptation might be to gulp down the book in large chunks and stay up late and read it, and especially if you like Tolkien. But I I feel like we're actually, you know, journeying through Middle Earth because this is, you know, now it's July and we've been reading less than a book a month, I guess. And it's just a, it's a different kind of relationship. And I, like, I would never tell one of my children in their own reading that they needed to like slow down on their free reading and their spare time or anything. But I feel like this lingering, there's just more that we can absorb. And it's probably only valuable with really good books that have a lot of depth to them is my guess, but that we just have more time to kind of assimilate the ideas and things that we're learning before we move on to the next part. And I think that there's value in, I guess, in the Sabbath, really, right? This idea of this pause between the readings and going slowly. And I think kids process things sometimes in their spare time that they've learned throughout the school day. And so having it be in kind of a digestible chunk, like they didn't eat the whole chicken. I gave them a chicken leg, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, and I, I feel like it's just that kind of thing, like we're, giving them the size of the portion size that they can handle. Cause I do ha- read more as they get older. So it's, it was less when they were younger and it's more now Though we're still very slow compared to some people. I think I just really value that digestion time and I, and the assimilating of the ideas and this idea that we're looking for wisdom. We're not just trying to consume the book and check it off our list or, you know, that kind of things. And I think, I do think wisdom takes time. Giving them an opportunity to kind of live with the chapter or the portion that you've read and mull it over and think about it and sleep on it. There's some brain processes that happen while we're sleeping as well. Right. um, Before they get to the next portion. Yeah. 
absolutely. What I even found with men, they're only three pages long, but the books are large. I mean, like in terms of how big the pages are, they're large and the type was small and there was a lot on it. And so I was assigning a chapter a week, I think, but I even broke that up over two days for the most part. And so on Monday, we'd read half of a chapter and on Wednesday, we'd read the rest of the chapter we started on Monday. I found that they do remember more than if I was to do the whole chapter in one day. Now, I don't think that that's necessary, for instance, for my child that's going to be in eighth grade. I mean, he could do a whole chapter in a day. That's totally fine. But at the younger ages, I've just found that breaking it up like that, there's just more that they retain. There's more that they take in because it's not as rushed. I don't know if you've ever tried to do to narrate something that you've read, but it is really interesting. I found I've kind of experimented myself narrating, I don't know, to a voice memo on my iPod (laughs) just to see what I could do. But it is interesting. Like if I read a whole chapter, then I can do an outline of the chapter, but there's it's not very detailed. But if I do a section of a chapter, then there's a lot more detail to my narration. Like they're pretty much equal in length. So my narration is, you know, three and a half minutes of a chapter or three and a half minutes of a section of a chapter. So it's interesting. I mean, it kind of depends on how deeply we want to get into something, how slow we should or might want to read it. But it has been interesting for me, even as a personal experiment to see just how much more depth I get when I slow down. Okay. And so you require a narration from all of your circle time reading? Uh, Not all of it. Like I I don't narrate poetry and I have actually sort of ebbed and flowed on circle time reading, but yeah, I mean, geography, they do a narration for sure. Science, they do a narration for sure. Some of the other things I've changed over the years, just depending. And, And I will say with certain of our readings, If they launched right into a conversation, then depending on how the conversation went, I might have considered the narration unnecessary. You know, like if there was so much of the content that came up in a conversation at some point, I don't need to actually formally go through the narration because it sort of happened organically. They followed the same process by having the the discussion that they would have by narrating back to you. Right. But if they're not very talkative after, then I do have them narrate because I do find that things stick. And so that is and really, I think, a good test of how long a reading should be is how much a child can narrate. So that's a very personal thing. Some kids can narrate a lot. I have one child that needs to be taught to not narrate so much <laughs> because I don't need to listen to her talk for 15 minutes after every book she reads. But, you know, so some of that is very just, you know, and if you're working with a first grader, it's going to be less than if you're working with fifth grader, you know, that kind of thing. So So do you have a trick for doing narration with multiple students in a circle time setting? Do you have any narration tricks? I I use dice, actually, or or usually one die. It depends on how many kids I have, because I I teach a group Plutarch sometimes. And when I've done that and I've had, you know, six or eight kids, then I just assigned them all a number, roll the die, that kind of thing. But I just, in my head, I don't tell the kids what is what, but in my head, I'll just say who's even and who's odd and I'll roll, roll a die. And that separates them into two sides of the table. So if the even sides win, then I decide who's even and who's odd roll again. And that's who has to narrate. And I found that because they all might have to narrate, they all pay attention as if they're going to narrate. So that's why I do it kind of chosen by random chance so that they're all listening attentively. If they know they don't have to narrate, then a couple of them totally start doing something else unless they're really, really into the book. So, Right. 
Okay, so at any given time, any child at the table might be randomly chosen by the die to give a narration. Yes, it's a lesson in fate. <laughs> <laughs> and so then at the end of that narration, do you ask other children if they have anything to add or anything like that? Or is, is that kind of it? Everybody else is, we're off the hook and you move on to the next thing. You know, it depends on how thorough it was. But if there's, you know, big, huge gaping holes, I, I shouldn't say that. I do often ask if anybody has anything to add regardless. But some narrations are so bad they demand <laughs> they demand for the holes to be filled. <laughs> I'm glad that's not just my house. <laughs> no, it's not. It's universal. <laughs> okay, so about how long does a morning time last in your house altogether? Well, this year I'm shooting for an hour. And we'll see because that's pretty long. We've gone back and forth. And there was one year I tried to go over an hour because Cindy Rollins's morning times were quite long near the end of the time that she was posting her plans online. And so I just got really motivated to make mine longer. But I think maybe my kids just weren't really old enough for that. Mm -hmm. And so that really bombed. So this is my first year trying an hour and I will, 45 minutes is probably what's average for us and works really well. And my main motivation for bumping it up to an hour is just because I have certain things that I would like to do shared as a group. And I found that if it's not in morning time, then it's more likely to get dropped. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen. It's just easier for it to fall through the cracks. So I'll, like, I'll even tack something on to the end of morning time. It's not really in morning time because it might just be me and one other child, but it's just this thing that I keep dropping. And I've realized if I actually put it on the morning time schedule <laughs> okay, and until everybody else, they can leave. And I just keep this one child with me for an extra 10 minutes or something. It's just more likely to happen. And I think it's because that's one place where we are really consistent. And so I can tack my inconsistent stuff to that consistency and kind of, I don't know, it's like it rides on the coattails or something and it works better than other things. That's a great tip. That, yeah, that's an excellent tip. I love that. Well, Brandy, do you ever find that with having a morning time that's 45 minutes to an hour long and you, you're doing all these different readings that you kind of lose the kids in there somewhere or do you do something to break the readings up? I know they're very interesting and engaging readings, but we are talking about young kids here. So what do you do about those kind of challenges? Absolutely. I think we can lose interest just by doing a good thing for too long. <laughs> and so... I mean, so first off, I think that kind of co- fits with the slow reading is just that they're short also so that we still have attention all the way to the end. But also, I think variety really helps. So breaking up readings, we don't and we don't do lots and lots of readings. I mean, we might read a chapter from one book and a chapter from a different book. And that's probably about it for the reading part of morning time. But I try to put something else between those two readings. So for me... It's always been really convenient to have all of our songs singing done during our memory work time because I keep the songs in the same binder that I keep the poems that we're memorizing and the scripture and all that stuff. And so that was really convenient. But singing in between the two chapters that we were reading was a great way to break things up when my when my two youngest children were really little. And well, and they were were really little and I wasn't requiring them to stay, but they would sometimes want to stay. (laughs) And so... So that was one thing that we did, you know, and there's been other times where I just, there was just something else there. Like if we were doing a composer study for the day, and so we had a piece of music that we were going to listen to by Bach or something, I could put that in between the two chapters. 
but it was just something to make it not two chapters back to back. And so just that variety, I think, helps. Always having something in between kind of to stagger those readings. So you might read and then you might recite memory work together and then you might read and then you might sing a hymn or two. Right. Right. And then, I mean, some days I think we even have a third reading just depending on what's going on. But I'm with you as long as I put something else in between there where they're actually maybe getting to talk or move their mouth in some way, sing, talk, something like that. They're able to handle the be quiet and be attentive and read at the same time. You know, I will say I used to think that the talking from like narration and having a conversation would be enough. That's what I used to think. And so I would think that I could put two readings back to back because in between, after the first reading, we would have this narration and conversation. And that I found wasn't enough. We really did need to do more like what you're saying, you know, with a song or, you know, something, I don't know, jumping up and down, (laughs) just like using a completely different part of our brain and on a completely different subject. And I know another thing you and I have talked about is like, if they're doing anything else while we're doing the readings. And so, I don't know, I've met people that use putty and stuff. We've never done that. But my little guy, he doesn't do this as much anymore, but he definitely, like we would be sitting at a table and he would be sitting more like on the floor next to the table playing with his cars or his train set or that kind of thing. Not all of it. He tried to bring all of it one time and that was a bit too much. But yeah, he doesn't do that. Um, I hadn't realized he outgrew that until I was thinking about it just now. But, you know, as long as he was not making really loud car noises or something, you know, he was able to kind of keep his hands occupied. And he was totally present. I mean, he knew all the songs and the poems and everything. But it just kind of, I don't know. It's like they just sometimes need something else to do with their bodies while they're thinking or something. Right. Something to do with their hands. We have that a lot here as well. Well, Brandy... Thank you so much for joining me today and talking to me about your morning time and reading during morning time. I just really appreciate all of your insights. This has been wonderful. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. I always love talking to you. You know that. (laughs) Yes. Thanks. And for our basket bonus this week, I am so excited because Brandy has compiled some of her favorite morning time reads for us. And these are readings that you can do in morning time in various subject areas. She's made a list of her very favorite books for families to use, and we've made a printable for you. So you can print this out and use it as a library list, or you can use it as a list to take to the bookstore to make your shopping or your book finding a little bit easier. So head on over to edsnapshots.com forward slash YMB3 to download your book list of Brandy's favorites for your basket bonus. And there you have it, episode three of Your Morning Basket. And I just want to thank you so much for listening in, joining me today. And the comments that you leave on the blog and that you send via email are so encouraging. And I also want to thank you for leaving those ratings and reviews in iTunes. Those ratings and reviews really help us out to get the podcast out to more people. I want to give a special shout out to One Colts Family and Bold Turquoise. These are two families who are doing morning time and listeners who stopped in to leave us lovely reviews on iTunes to let us know that we are doing a good job. So thank you so very much, ladies, for taking the time to do that. If you would like to leave a rating or review on iTunes, you can head on over to the show notes for this episode. You can find those at edsnapshots.com forward slash YMB3. 
there you can find links to everything that Brandy and I talked about today, the basket bonus, and you can also find instructions for how to leave that rating or review. And we appreciate you guys so much. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for another episode, but until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool. 